moving right through. We're almost halfway through the book of Numbers. Isn't that a blessing? <laughs> Amen. Numbers chapter 15. And I know it's really cold out this morning in northern Michigan. can throw you some real curveballs. For example, on Wednesday, it was clear. It was cold, but it was clear as we left Lupton. As soon as we hit 55, 65 court, it was a mess. I mean, like that, I mean, that, that Yukon, it's a tank, and it's got like all-wheel, you know, pass everything but a gas station, you know, but, and that thing, just, you touch the brakes, it's all squirrely, so I appreciate the fact that some of y'all stayed home, it was, <laughs> we had no idea it was going to be like that, but, uh, and I, again, I'm thankful that you're here, I am, why? It costs, and like I said before, I believe the Lord counts every mile, he counts every minute that you choose to serve him with, Amen. Numbers chapter 15 this morning, go all the way to uh, verse number 32. Bible says, just follow along with me. The Bible says, And while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man that gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. My, my, my. I added that. <clears throat> and they found him gathering sticks. Uh, they that found him gathering sticks brought him unto Moses and Aaron and all the congregation. They put him in ward because it was not declared what should be done to him. And the Lord said unto Moses, The man shall be surely put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. And all the congregation brought him without the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died as the Lord commanded Moses. Now we're going to keep reading here, but you know, this is the God that the United States does not want. A God that under the Levitical law would kill a man for gathering sticks. Now, aren't you glad you're not under the Levitical law? Because <laughs> if you loaded up the wood stove, you're a goner, man. <laughs> you're done. Verse 37, the Bible says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of the border a ribbon of blue. And it shall be unto you for a fringe, that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord, and do them, and that you seek not after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you used to go a-whoring, that ye may remember, do all my commandments, and be holy unto your God. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. An interesting passage, to say the least. I believe the Lord has some things for us today. Brother Tuttle, would you ask the Lord's help in the preaching this morning? Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we pass through chapter 14, believe it or not, there's another message in chapter 14. No, I'm not going to preach it. I might just touch on it real quick as we try to get from point A to point B. Man, I'll tell you, the more I look at chapter 14, is absolutely loaded. Absolutely loaded. And it's, a, it's a, one of those chapters that, you know, it's, it's a hard one. It's a difficult one to process because they were so close to where God wanted them to be but because they refused to move forward, take a step in the right direction, they kind of had to go out and get stuck in a rut for 40 years. But as chapter 14 opens up, we saw that that evil report that you know so much about now, it led Israel from discouragement to desperation. And let me tell you what, even around uh, this time of year, uh, there's a lot of people who are discouraged. Uh, there's a lot of things you get Thanksgiving. I remember the first Thanksgiving I was away from home. Man, I thought it was the end of the world. I was doing school, and I'm, 
sitting here, I'm a tough guy, you know, I'm in college, I'm a college man, you know, and, and all of a sudden, I'm not there for Thanksgiving, I'm, man, I was a wreck, I was a wreck, you say, why do you say that, well, discouragement's real this time of year, not around, some people can't be around family, some people don't have family to be around, uh, you know, we, we, I believe for the most part, I might be wrong or mistaken, but I believe for the most part when we have things like Thanksgiving or Christmas, regardless of how you see it or celebrate it, you still surround yourself with family, don't you? And there's a lot of comfort, there's a lot of encouragement, there's a lot of strengthening, whether you like them all or not. You're part of a family unit, and you're kind of brought back to your roots, if, if I could say it like that. And a lot of people this time of year, they don't have what you and I have. But as the children of Israel, they see the, they hear the evil report by those ten wicked old spies, and they're discouraged, and it leads to desperation, and they want to go back and do what they always did before. They wanted to go back to Egypt, didn't they? Amen? Don't you want to do that sometimes in your Christian life? You don't have to say amen, oh me, or whatever, but sometimes you get discouraged, and you're like, what's it all worth? Why do I get up, and why do I go to church? Why do I try to read my Bible? Why do I try to pray? But discouragement leads to desperation, and of course, it follows into devilment with the children of Israel. And because of their devilment, we preached last week, God had just had it with them. And He begins to lay out the penalty. And that penalty was going to be carried out on the nation of Israel. But here comes Moses, the mighty intercessor. And he begins to plead for the people of Israel. You know that old boy, he doesn't stop pleading until he gets the pardon. Isn't that a blessing? And we learned last week that we probably should begin to be the one who pleads for others. If this country had a Moses, maybe we wouldn't be in the mess we're in. I love this country. I know it's headed for hell, sure, as with the door shut. But what if there was a Moses that would plead to God night and day for this country? You say, well, it can't happen. How do you know? You ever missed a meal for your country? You ever prayed for more than two minutes for your country? I'm not getting political on you. I'm just throwing you a curve. We pray for our needs, our wants. God, supply my need. Pay the bill. Fix the stove. Fix the car. Keep the deer out of my path. But I'll tell you what, this nation's wicked. Pray for it. Paul told Timothy, I would you uh, prayers be made for all their authority, whether you like them or not. Are we doing all right this morning? Well, you know, the penalty, Moses begins to plead. He gets the pardon. And, of course, uh, what happens is Israel, as chapter 14 begins to close there, we're moving into chapter 15. What happens is you see this devilment it uh, is furthered by further disobedience. And towards the end of chapter 14, not only is it disobedience, but you find a glaring and daring arrogance. You say, why? They were wrong. They sinned. They knew it. They woke up the next morning and like, we're going to go do it anyways. And the Bible says they presumed to go. That's presumptuous Christianity. You say, why? Because they just figured since the Lord hadn't knocked their block off the ten times before they had tempted him, they just going to run over to the promised land and God was going to catch and make a, you just, just cover all their mess. You know, you're like that sometimes in your Christian life, amen? God's been patient with you, he's been patient with me. And you mess the thing up and the Lord's like, all right, I'm done dealing with you in this fashion right here. You get up the next morning and you think that you've got the backing of God and you've got all the blessing of God and you're just going to run off and do whatever you jolly well please and the Lord's like, I ain't in that thing. And he just steps back. You didn't lose your salvation, but he's not as close to you as he was before. And what happens is you go there and because of your devilment and your discouragement and your disobedience and your daring arrogance, at the end of chapter 14, they suffer a vicious defeat. And I don't know about you, as you read the book of Numbers, yes, the first seven chapters are difficult. There's no doubt about it. I do not go, I am so excited to read the first seven chapters of the book of Numbers. Now, the first nine, actually, but seven and eight, they've got some intricate value in there. And don't, don't get me wrong, all the scriptures 
worth reading and digesting, but the first seven chapters are difficult. It's like reading 1 Chronicles chapter 1 through 10, right? He begat, she begat, and all they begat, hey, right? So 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 is a real difficult time, but all of a sudden you begin this narrative, I believe it's in chapter 8, and it begins to flow. And I like history, I really do. I know some of you can't stand history, I really enjoy history. And there's a flowing narrative and that thing it gets more interesting and more interesting and more intricate and the details and the picture that's being painted and all of a sudden lo and behold you get to chapter number 15 and you're right back where? To some boring mechanical clerical instruction. And where I first began to pick this up is I used to listen to Scorby when I was uh, with an ice cream company. And I'd listen to the Bible a minimum of once a month through. Just because it doesn't mean I was like focusing on every word. I just let it play, right? Ye are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. When our family came to this church, I played Scorby in this church for a stinking week. I thought there were demons running around in here, man. Ye are clean through the words which I have spoken to you. You say, what happened? The Lord started kicking around in this place after we had the Word of God read for seven days and seven nights. But anyways, I began to see the difference in the narrative. You go from chapter 14 all of a sudden to 15, and there's a dramatic change in the layout of the passage. And I said, Lord, why is it that way? It goes right from a running historical narrative describing the events of the book of Numbers and how they're not going into the promised land now. And now he orders them out into the wilderness. And it's almost like you're back in the book of Leviticus if you've ever read your Bible. And you're like, all right, Lord, did you, were you tired that day when you collated the King James Bible? Was that really supposed to go back over there? And I got to thinking about that thing. I'm like, there's nothing wrong with the scripture. There's got to be something wrong with the way I'm processing it. And I might not be right. But the more I thought about that thing, and I asked the Lord, what is that? He gave me this thought, just for me. And the thought is this, if I'm not willing to do what God wants me to, yes, I'll be stuck in a rut, but many times, He's got to then take me back to school. Because there's some things that I have to learn. And in my Christian life, I can look at at least three or four major places where I believe maybe the Lord would have taken me one step farther, and I'm like, no, well, I'm a grasshopper in the side, and you know what, I can't do it, and I just, I don't believe you, Lord, I don't trust you, and I'm, I'm not going forward, and it's almost like the Lord's like, okay, fine, back to school, back in the classroom, all right, I got to teach you all over again, and you notice the first, what is it, 31 verses of chapter 15? That's a tough read. I don't care who you are and how spiritual you really claim to be, that's a tough read. You got the burn offering, the heave offering, and this offering, and that offering. I'm like, really? And what the Lord is doing, he's giving you instruction. If when you get into the land, because remember, now you're not going. You're stuck in a rut. But when you get there, there's going to be a certain way in which you do things, and a certain way in which you approach me, and a certain way in which you fellowship with me, and a certain way in which you, you're not just going to give whatever offering you want to. You're going to do it the way I want you to do it. Not only that, but then he talks about some sins of ignorance. And you say, well, how does that fit in? I have no idea. I just know that in my Christian life, when I'm not willing to move forward like Jesus Christ wants me to, many times he's got to make me repeat the grade. Make me repeat the class. And if you're honest with yourself this morning, you can relate. You've been close with the Lord at different times. He wanted you to move closer to Him. He wanted you to get prioritized in your Christian life, but you just wouldn't do it. So He's like, okay, I love you, but now you're going to go back to school because there's some things you haven't learned. Not the message this morning, but as we set up for here in the back part of chapter 15, what you have beginning at verse 32 is simply a man gathering sticks. And then he's stoned to death by the congregation to which we're all thankful we're not under the law. And then you get instructions that are given to the children of Israel as something they need to add to their garments. And as I'm thinking about this, how this all ties together, I believe the real message in the under, is the underlying spiritual admonition about where you or I are supposed to be looking at while we're in the wilderness. There's a specific place you and I need to learn to look and to live each moment with eternity in view. You and I need to live each moment, like the kid's song says, with eternity's values in view. Every Christian, every 
uh, one that can hear my voice, needs to live and practice each moment learning to have the long look. What is that? That's the look where you're looking at the judgment seat of Christ, making every decision in the light of when you're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that's the real message this morning. I want to unravel this type and picture from the text before us today. Can I just give you some types? This is just going to be some spiritual, just some thoughts. Not even, uh, not even there might be some alliterates, but it's not. Usually I have three points and a poem and maybe an illustration. There's really only two thoughts today, but just a bunch of sub-thoughts under those thoughts. Can I tell you that what you have is a, you've got that man-gathering sticks. You see it? And to me, what that is, that's a type of Christian looking down at the ground. I want you to think about that for a minute. I want to preach just for a few minutes on this thing. Let me give you the first thought. A Christian who spends his days looking down at the ground, he's headed for trouble. He's headed for trouble. Look at verse 32. Notice it produces the wrong focus. His work, which in and of itself is innocent and commendable and noteworthy, it produces a wrong focus. Verse 32 says, they found a man that gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. See, this man, you know what he is? He's continually focused on his fields. He's continually focused on his family and on his finances and on his friends and maybe just, you know, the old American way of having fun. That's what our country's come to these days. It's planning the next time they can get together and have fun. Why? Their focus is down here. A lot of Christians these days, they're, focus is down here. Their focus is on their field. That's their work. Man was working. I mean, good grief with the, with the society and generation that we've raised. You see a man working, you leave him alone, don't you? Like, oh, what is that? I've never seen that before. Oh, he's working. Where did you learn that? They don't teach that in America anymore. Right? So here's a man that's working but his work made his focus in the wrong direction. It produced a wrong focus. He's focused on his fields, his family, his finances. I want you to notice, first of all, and logically enough, he's doing the right thing at the wrong time. You say, you're going to preach the law, preacher? You're going to preach about going to church on the Sabbath? That's Saturday. No, we're not Jews. We meet on Sunday. Why? Jesus Christ rose the first day of the week. They preached the first day of the week. They gathered up tithes and offerings on the first day of the week. And they met together and preached on the first day of the week. First day of the week is Sunday. That's why we gather on Sunday. But what about Wednesday? I know. Sounds like a pretty good idea to me. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Amen. Let every man be fully persuaded. Well, I don't think I need to come on Wednesday. It shows. It's okay. I'm not upset with you. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Each man esteemeth one day different than another. So here you see a man, he's doing the right thing at the wrong time. You know what it is? His priorities are simply, simply wrong. In the passage, you know, a lot of you Christians' priorities are wrong. You see what I just did there? As a preacher, you say, you don't know my problems, but the Lord does. You could tell me in a room full of 30, 40 people that there's that one Christian that doesn't have wrong priorities in here. God called me to preacher, not to prance around. Some of your priorities are wrong. You say, which ones? Well, ask the Holy Spirit. He's inside of you. I mean, some of your priorities are wrong with your work. That's your problem. That's not mine. But notice he's doing the right thing at the wrong time. His priorities are wrong. Just like many Christians. You know, some of you Christians, you've never made serving the Lord a priority. You've never made serving the Lord a priority. How about this? Some of you Christians have never made witnessing to the lost a priority. Are we doing all right? Oh, come on, preacher. Preach the narrative instead. <laughs> preach what Israel did wrong. Don't preach what I'm doing wrong, you know. But some Christians, they just their priorities are all messed up. It's tough, ain't it? Why? Focus is wrong. Looking down here. And Christians never make uh, witness into loss a priority. Well, you know, I, I do that, uh, but, you know, I got to work. I got to work too. You got to We all got to work. What does that mean? I got to put our pants on one leg at a time, because if you do two, you fall. And you've done that before. 
and you're glad no one was in the bedroom when you did it. Poof, down you go. And that was when you put your underwear on, amen? You felt like an idiot. I'll say it because you won't, I know. And then sometimes your spouse does see you and they laugh at you, amen? But some of you never made serving the Lord a priority. How about, the, you know, some of you never made prevailing in prayer a priority. It's always just something the preacher talks about. And you say this, I should pray more. But you don't. Why? Because you're wicked? No, your priorities are wrong. Your focus is down here. Because if your focus was up there, it would produce prayer. But since your focus are down here, you can't pray. You don't have the time to pray. You don't feel the need to pray. And then when you're reminded it through some song or some message, you're like, yeah, I should be doing that. But I can't. Why? Wrong focus. I'm just saying it's the right thing at the wrong time. Good thing to pick up sticks, ain't it? You know why it's right? Because a man ought to work. Well, that was pretty weak, wasn't it? You expect way too much, preacher. I probably do. You know why it's right? Uh, because his family needed him to work. Paul said if a man's, uh, he says, uh, if he, he doesn't provide for his own, he's worse than an infidel. If you're able to work and you don't work and you don't provide for your family, Paul said that you're worse than an infidel. And, of course, you know that by the society that we're a part of now, the generation that is today. That's a fact. That's not an opinion. You don't like it. Too bad. But it's the right thing at the wrong time. It's right because his family needs him to work. It's right because it's good to work. How about this? It's right because his children need to learn how to work, and they'll never learn how to work if they don't see him work. I don't know why they're so lazy. Well, why don't you quit sitting on your hind end every time you come home and read whatever it is you want and do something? We farm our kids off to schools. We farm our kids off to colleges. We farm our kids off to sports. We farm our kids off to everything, but we never invest in them. By the time your kid's 18, you should be a put something into them. That, I mean, you can't take off with Ajax. Bible says, uh, train up a child the way he should go and when he's old and not depart from it. That works both ways. Because you're training them whether it's good or bad. Amen? Amen? I'm not saying how they turned out. Remember, your children have a free will. They're going to do whatever they want to do. Just like you did. And you, can, you could be the right dad and the right mom and get father of the year award and all that stuff. And your kids can go out of the church house and just live like the absolute devil. But you know what? If you train them right and you raise them right, that stuff's going to haunt them and it's going to gnaw at them until they completely sear their conscience and then still they're not out of the hands of the Holy Spirit. All right, it's good, but it's just at the wrong time. You say, why? Always looking for sticks. You know, a lot of Christians in 2022 are just... Spending their life looking for sticks. Looking for sticks. Let me say this. The wrong focus, it produces bondage. Look at verse 34. We're doing all right this morning. Verse 34. Y'all are northerners, so you're thinking. And when you think, you get quiet. Amen. Verse 34, the Bible says, And they put him in ward. I'm showing you a spiritual type and application throughout the text. This wrong focus, it puts you into bondage. All right? They put him in war. Not only that, the wrong focus, it produces separation from his brethren instead of the world. Look at verse 36. And all the congregation brought him without the camp. In a moment of time, there's going to be a great separation between that fella and the rest of his brethren. And let me tell you what. When your focus is on the ground and you're focused on things of this world, and you're focused on things that don't have to do with Jesus Christ, the rapture, the judgment seat of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb, things that are pure, things that are honest, things that are just, you begin to separate yourself from your brethren. You're the one that separate from them. And you get to thinking this, well, they must be stuck up. No, it's you. You're the one causing the separation. You're the one causing the division. Why? Your focus is wrong. You blame everyone else because you're uncomfortable. You blame everybody else because you're under conviction. You blame everybody else because you think they're wrong, but yet you're the one with the wrong focus. 
Someone gets up and testifies what God's done, and you go back and think, well, you, they, if everyone knew what I knew about them. Well, let me tell you what. If everyone knew what, everything you did, we wouldn't even shake your hand. That's a straw man's argument. It produces bondage. It produces separation. And finally, the wrong focus I want you to see this morning, it produces a death in your relationship with the Lord. I'm using the text as a type and picture of a spiritual walk with Jesus Christ. Look at verse 36. Three words, and he died. There's a death. But if I'm not mistaken, as a Christian, I need to have the right kind of death. That'd be death to me, not the spiritual man. And the more you put your focus down here in the ground, the more you worry about this, and the more you're worried about... I don't even know what's coming down the pike. You just had uh, midterms, you know, just enough to make you squirm. And then the more you put your focus on the election and who's in the outhouse and who's on first and second and who's the, the rep- whatever, or who's running the city dump or the city council or the city, sur- whatever it is, the more you put you focus that down here, you just begin to have all kinds, you're headed for trouble, headed for trouble. Kind of bondage, separation from your brethren instead of the world. And, and eventually what it does is it just simply creates a death in your relationship with the Lord. And he died, verse 36. Would you consider with me just for a moment, we're halfway through. I told you it's just going to be a couple thoughts this morning. Would you consider with me this morning that many Christians just spend a lifetime looking for sticks? Just looking for sticks. Running errands for a corpse that will benefit them nothing at all in eternity. Look, uh, if you're a man, if you're a woman, you're going to have to work. I mean, unless you're inherently wealthy, you've already done your, you know, two prison terms at the, you know, 16 tons and what do you get and all that stuff. And you've already put in your time. You're going to have to work. I understand that we're not talking about you should not work. But many times our work, what we do and what we want, what we like and what we love is what causes our focus to be in the wrong direction. Just consider with me, if you would, consider it. Just, just knock it around in your brain up there for a minute that uh, many Christians are spending their life just looking for sticks, spending a lifetime with their eyes down at the ground, focusing on everything in this life. Take your Bibles. I want you to look at this passage with me, Colossians chapter 3. Many of you know it, but I want you to see it again with your own eyes. I understand this passage has to do with a man who violated the Levitical law. We're not going back under that, amen? But the the spiritual thing that you and I need to grasp from this thing, and I'm going to show you the other side of that thing in a minute, is that you can't spend your entire Christian life with the wrong focus, or you're going to head for trouble. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. You ever hear that saying, well, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. To which I say, bananas. I've never met anyone who is so uh, heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. You couldn't be. The Bible says if you're saved, if you're risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. That means my focus needs to be up. Why? Not down here. The things of this earth will go strangely dim. Why? Because I'm turning my eyes upon Jesus. Jesus is the one I'm looking at. Jesus is the one I'm looking to. His word is what I should be looking at. Why? Because when I look at his word, I'm looking at him. Every time a Christian moves in the direction his eyes are fixed upon, uh, he often heads for trouble when it's down here. Uh, you probably heard the thing before. It's a, it's a term called drifting. It has to do with your driving. And many of you have experienced it on accident. And all I know is uh, in the old days where you had to turn knobs to turn the radio station. I'm not too old, but I do remember doing that. If I looked down to my right to turn a radio station, I would drift to the right. Uh, If I want to reach down in that little cubby hole down here where the door handle is and trying to find whatever it is, a pen or something while I drive or something that's immaterial, I'm not using my head. I'm going across the lane. Thank the Lord for the rumble strips now. 
The only thing saved my tail about a hundred times, besides falling asleep, you know. But that's drifting. That's just like your Christian life. If you're looking to the right, you're going to go to the right. If you're looking to the left, you're going to go to the left. If you're looking down at the ground, you're going to go down. And you're going to focus on what's down. Luke chapter 9, verse 62, what did Jesus Christ say? Jesus Christ said, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Why? You can't plow a straight line if you're looking back. I mean, you're going to look like one of these uh, marijuana stores, all high and all over the place over here. Amen. Stinking high state you and I live in drives me crazy. Used to be wicked. Used to send people to prison for it. Now we glorify it and build beautiful buildings. And if we're the government, we give all kinds of money to do it. Just because they can get a little kickback out of your pocket. Shame on us. Not sure where that came from, but it came out. Christian, you move in the direction that your eyes are fixed upon is all I'm trying to say. And Jesus Christ said, if you're looking back, you're not fit for the kingdom. It doesn't mean you're not going. You can't lose your salvation. But if you're looking back all the time, just like Lot's wife, you become the first deer lick in the Bible. The pillar of salt. That's it. <laughs> now you notice the Bible is replete with examples about people that had trouble with their eyes. And you've had trouble with your eyes, haven't you? And so have I. You know, Eve, you know, Eve's problem was it was her eyes. The Bible says over there in Genesis chapter 3 that she saw that it was good for food. And a tree desired to make one wise and pleasant to the eyes. She saw it. She wanted it. She took it. She ate it. Why? Wrong focus. Her focus should have been on her husband. Why? He's the only man alive. Well, Eve had eye trouble. How about Lot? Would you agree with me that Lot had some eye trouble? Amen. Genesis chapter 13 was about verse 16. And Lot lifted up his eyes and he views all the plain of Jordan right by Sodom. And you know that thing, he starts out and he, he's got all this land and it's real fertile and he's, uh, he's, a, he's a big tycoon there. And the next thing you know, by the time you get to chapter 19, he's moved from outside the city of Sodom to inside the city. You see how that works? He started looking towards the city, and he moved outside the city. And next thing you know, he's in the city. And right before he meets a bitter, his uh, wife meets a salty end, and he loses his daughters, two daughters there. And the other two, he has incestuous uh, sons by his daughters. There's a good uh, general hospital volume for you, right? But just before that happens, he's a ruler in there. He goes from outside to inside to run in the joint. Why? Wrong focus, down here, but preacher. I know, you're just looking for sticks. Well, you got Eve, you got Lot, you got, how about Balaam? Balaam wanted to be somebody, wanted a little bit of recognition. So that old, uh, that old wicked king of the Moabites, Balak, called him out there. He said, Balak, you come out here and you curse me, Jacob, and you curse me, Israel, I'll make you a rich man. I'll put you, I'll put you uh, right out of the chair of the committee. You know what I mean? I'll make you the associational missionary. And I'll, I'll bless you with silver and gold. You'll always have a meeting, and you'll have plenty of money. You'll have a housing allowance, and, and you'll have a new car every year. And Balaam said, oh, that's my shot. That's what I've always wanted. He got up there, and he tried to curse Jacob, and the Lord overrode his mouth. Lord ever done that to you? You go say something you shouldn't have, and Lord, oh, you shut it. <laughs> he overrode Balaam's mouth four different times. You say what it cost him? It cost him his life. He tried to get his attention by his donkey, and he ends up slapping around his own donkey, and it ends up costing his life by the time things over. I'm talking about eye trouble, the wrong focus. Samson, he had trouble with his eyes. Judges chapter 16, verse 1. He goes on to that town of Gaza. Right? I mean, I mean, a real He-Man, master of the universe, you know what I mean? <laughs> and he's a tough guy, strong guy, you know, would make uh, Eddie Shaw look like a little grasshopper there, right? That'd be a big old power lifter. I'm, you know, Sa Samson, I would just imagine, you know, I know all the artists make him like, I'm a Schwarzenegger and all that, but I believe that Samson's probably just a five foot eight Jew. There's, I, mean, I, I've never, I mean, Saul was the tallest Jew out there. He's about six foot or seven foot Jew there. Old Samson, I believe he's just a scrawny little Jew. 
And all of a sudden, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw a harlot in the town of Gaza. And, you know, running after that, what his eye saw ended up costing his life. Cost his two eyes. Cost him his spiritual eyesight. Why? Wrong focus. Focusing down here instead of what God wanted to do. God wanted to judge the Philistines, judge the nation of Israel. He said, well, he did some of that. Yeah, he got right for a spell, but then he went after that harlot, and she ended up getting burned up with her father-in-law. Why? Wrong focus. And then he started putting his head in the devil's lap there with Delilah, gave up his power, lost his eyes, and he ended up killing himself over the thing. Why? Wrong focus. Wrong focus. You got Eve, you got Lot, Balaam, Samson. How about David? Good old David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, man after God's own heart. You know, even David, uh, the only king recognized by the Lord, the king, the Bible says, David the king, he had eye trouble. The Bible says over there was 2 Samuel, at the time where kings go out to battle, he stayed back home. You know, there comes a time in your Christian life, the Lord expects you to go out and fight the battle. Amen. Amen. You can't stay in the nursery forever. A lot of Christians are stuck in the nursery. A lot of Baptist churches across America are stuck in the nursery mode because they won't get off their blessed assurance and go fight the battle for Jesus Christ. And David was a mighty man of valor. He could bend a bow of steel with his hands and he was filled with the Holy Spirit of God every time he went out and he emaciated and he beat every enemy he ever came to, including Goliath. And what happens when it's time for him to fight, he's like, you know what? I've had a pretty hard go at it. I think I'll stay home. And he got to looking at this woman named Bash and he cast his eyes upon that woman washing herself and I'm telling you what those strong years became stressful years from that point on he lost four boys three boys and one nephew because of his sin why was he just wicked just wrong focus looking at the wrong place at the wrong time should have been looking up and he was looking down he was just looking for sticks. See, no one's ever going to question your motive, Christian, if you're just looking for sticks. Well, he's a hard-working man. She's a hard-working lady. I'll tell you what, what this country needs is more hard. Amen. Amen. I believe you ought to work as hard as you can. And if you don't work hard, shame on you. I hope you can't sleep at night. I'm at that age now. I'm not too old, but I'm slowly approaching the threshold of almost old. Or if I don't work hard, I can't sleep. I have to work hard or I cannot sleep. And you're like, well, you must not work very hard because you don't sleep very good. I know, right? <laughs> you pray for me on that. I hope you don't sleep a bit if you don't work. So let me say this. We're about ready to shift the gears. So if the Christian gets himself into trouble looking down here at the ground all the time, that's the passage, right? He's in the passage looking for sticks, gathering sticks. Right thing at the wrong time. Christians are real good at that. Where... Is he supposed to look then? I believe you know the answer to that. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The Bible says in Titus 2, 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians, was it chapter 1, verse 10? I'm sorry, Philippians 3, 20. For our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior. That's where we're supposed to be looking. Supposed to be looking up. Keep looking up, not looking down. Well, let me tell you this one. Number two, a Christian who spends his days looking up will truly please the Lord. Remember, the Christian who spends his entire lifetime looking to the ground, he's headed for trouble. We talked about the trouble. We showed you the trouble. We documented the trouble. We showed you the trouble in the text. But a Christian who spends his life looking up, he's going to please the Lord. Let me show you this. Let me show you in verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 38. I want to show you what looking up produces. Looking up produces a change of garments. Verse 38. Lord said, bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, that they put on the fringe of the borders a ribbon of... Isn't that weird? Lord, why? Why? I... Blue? Well, my favorite color is green. Right? If it was a Baptist meeting, it'd be like, oh, I think yellow's the right color because we like to golf. No, 
No, it's red. We all know it's the color of the blood. It's got to be red. And the Lord's like, no, make it a ribbon of blue. You ever stop and wonder why? He, made, he wanted them to put a fringe border on their garments. That's the weirdest thing you've ever heard. As if the Lord's interested in your cotton-picking fashion. There's more to this thing. Notice this. I want you to see this morning, the blue is the color of the heavens where God lives. That blue is in the curtain of the tabernacle. That fine twine linen, that blue was in the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. That blue was in the door of the tabernacle as you walked into it. That blue was in the high priestly ephod. The one who met with God, the change of garments, was something they had to put on every day in the passage. And as a Christian, you know what? You're going to have to put on the new garment every single day. That's putting on the new man. That blue is a representation of where God lives. God lives in the north. God lives in the heavens. That thing is so documented through the Old Testament, it's not even funny. And he said, you put a ribbon of blue on that thing, and you look at that, and you're reminded about me. You start putting your eyes upon Jesus Christ, you'll automatically begin to put the new man on every single day, just like a change of clothes. Christianity has got the thing backwards. They're like, oh, if I get saved... I'm going to have to not be able to do this. Or I'm a Christian, I can't go do this. Your focus is wrong. See, when you're looking down here, everything done up there is a drudgery. But when your eyes are upon Jesus Christ, it produces itself naturally. The reason why some of you don't like spiritual things is because your eyes are stuck on the ground looking for sticks. Notice that a Christian who spends his days looking up, he truly pleases the Lord. It produces a change of garments, and it produces a change of habits. Look at verse 39. It says, And it shall be unto you for a fringe, that ye may look upon it, and remember all the commandments of the Lord. That's a change of habits. Why? Not natural to do that. Not na- when you wake up in the morning, it is not, I don't care how spiritual you look, pretend, or smell, it is not natural for you to get up and spend time with the Lord. It is not natural. It may be a habit for me. Look, Bible reading is habit forming. Praise the Lord. So if you start doing it, you can begin to get into habit. But drawing close to Jesus Christ is not habit forming. That is something you have to put on every single day. That means you start reading the book daily. That means you start studying the book daily. Can I just, can I challenge? Look. The older you get, you get stuck in your ways. Someone say amen. amen. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. I mean, y'all stuck. Some of you stuck so bad, you couldn't get out with an unsticker machine. Amen? But the fact of the matter is, some of you have got it ingrained in your mind that you just, all you can do is read. I've got to read my Bible. That's all I can do. Shut up. Leave me alone. i got to read my Bible. Good. Have you ever stop and just allow the Lord to speak to you while you read? And when something sticks out, it's okay to underline it. I can't write in my Bible. My good. Sometimes it looks like crayons threw up in this thing, man. It's okay to underline it. It's okay to write a note in it. I know some of you do. I'm not getting on you. I know a lot of you like to preach this. No, it's not dumb. It's so, that's studying your Bible. Get out of the rut. All you can do is read. Yes, I understand you're clean through the word which I have spoken. I'm just saying when your eyes are up here and they're focused upon Jesus Christ, it produces not only a new garment, but it produces a change of habits. You start reading, you start studying, you start to take interest in spiritual things. Because face it, some days I'm not interested in church. And all of a sudden the Lord becomes more beautiful and precious. And my habits begin to change. I start meditating on the things that I read in the morning. I start trying to memorize Scripture again. This generation doesn't memorize Scripture. I might be mistaken, but I believe my generation was the last generation that saw a lot of Scripture memorization with Iwana clubs. You know we're not any better spiritually because those things are gone. The Bible says, Thy word... Have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee? Ever wonder why you got so much of a sin problem during the week? Because you ain't hiding the word of God in your heart. 
That's Bible. That's not my opinion. I ain't that smart. But it produces a change of habits. You start reading the Bible. You start studying the Bible. You start meditating on the Bible. You start memorizing the Bible. How about this? Start paying your bills. Like, preacher, where'd that one come from? I'm a preacher, remember? I don't know who needs to hear this, but some of you st- quit fooling around, start paying. You start treating your wife right. Amen? You quit all this foolishness. Change of habits. Why? Now my focus is in the right place. I can clearly see what I need to do. But when I'm down here focusing on sticks, I'm missing the forest for the trees. I can't see anything except just the present need at the present second and the present hour, and your opinion don't matter, and I just got to run errands for this old corpse, and I got to feed this old flesh, and stop bothering me. I got to take care of my family. Stop bothering me. We live in this old wicked country, but oh, oh, there you are, Lord. Wow. Okay. And I got my bearings. Change of, change, amen. Change of garments, change of habits. How about a change of heart? Numbers 15, 39, the Bible says that you seek not after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you used to go a-whoring. Great verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Paul lays on the Corinthians and talking about the wickedness that they used to be a part of. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, And such were some of you. Can I say this? And such were some of you but you've had a change of heart. He says, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, and Lord Jesus, and by the Spirit of our God. It's a change of heart. And you know what this change of heart produces? Look at verse 40. It produces a spirit of obedience. A change of heart produces a spirit of obedience. He says that ye may remember... And do all my commandments. When your focus is in the right place, look, we make Christianity difficult. We make serving the Lord difficult. We make all these things that are positives in our life, we make them difficult because our focus is in the wrong place. Jesus Christ told the disciples, He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Preachers today, because I is a preacher, so I'll pick on a preacher, they're like, no one shows up for visitation. No, we don't have a visitation, so don't get the wrong idea. All right? If you're saved, you ought to go, you, you get it? You're a Christian 24-7. Do I really have to have a visitation program for you to be a Christian? Am I against it? No. But we're a country church. So unless someone's going to be faithful and man up and do it, I ain't doing it. I got enough to do. But here's the point. Jesus Christ said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So if you ain't fishing for men, probably because you ain't following Jesus. You see how the Bible works? Why? Focus. In the wrong area? Change of habits, change of heart. Produces a spirit of obedience that you may remember and do all my commandments. Amen? A spirit of obedience. Yes, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Isn't that what Paul said when he first got saved? That's a great starting question. What wilt thou have me to do, Lord? Not a rude spirit. I've been familiar with a rude spirit before. Okay. I'll get my family members. I figured they'd amen me on that. Not this rash spirit. Not this rough spirit. You got to treat everyone like they're nothing and you're everything because you know more Bible than they do. Not this critical spirit. Tired of it. I'm tired of a critical spirit. Listen, when it comes to sin, you need to be critical. When it comes to sin, you need to have a bad attitude. But when it comes to the brethren, you need to stop that foolishness. That's a wrong spirit. Jesus Christ told James and John, you know not what spirit you are of. He's like, shall we call down fire from heaven? Because they they didn't give us a refill on our latte or something. (laughs) Burn them up. He's like, you know not what spirit you are of. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which is lost. But it gives you the right spirit when your focus is right. It's a spirit of obedience. Yes, Lord, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord, or mountain or plain or sea. You know why we don't go where God wants us to go? Because we don't realize he wanted us to go in the first place because we're down here looking for sticks. I'm I'm on the home front. This change of heart, it produces a spirit of obedience. It produces... 
personal holiness. Look at verse 40. That ye may remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. You can't fabricate holiness. You can't make it up. You, you can't wear holiness. That's what the holiness crowd did. They're like, oh, we're going to embody holiness by our hair length, our hem length, and whatever, whatever the length, whatever. You can't do it. Why? Because there's some old blue hair bitty somewhere. She just dressed all right, and she got the most rotten attitude you ever seen in your life. The same goes with the old geezer. Holiness can't be fabricated. Three times in your Bible, in Leviticus, I believe it's chapter 11, verse 44 and 45, be ye holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter chapter 3, be ye holy, for I am holy. It produces a spirit of holiness. You don't hear preached about holiness anymore, do you? You don't. If it is some kind of cockeyed thing, it don't make any sense. But when your focus is right, it will produce within you a spirit of holiness. Holiness cannot be fabricated. Personal holiness is a thing of the past. It's a byproduct of a clean heart, and you just can't fabricate it. Last but not least, this change of heart produces thankfulness. Look at verse 41. He says, I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. To be your God, I am the Lord your God. You remember when you were brought out? I tell you what, when your focus is right, and you're not spending your lifetime looking for sticks, you can look up the Lord, you can follow Him like you're supposed to, and it sure does make you thankful. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. You ever just stop and think what a bad deal the Lord got when He got you? Thank you, Lord, for my salvation. Thank you, Lord, for my wife. She still loves me. She called me today. Thank you for my kids. Thank you for my church. Thank you for meeting with us like you do so many times. And you can't be thankful if you're always looking for sticks. You're going to get upset because the sticks are too heavy. There's not enough of them. There's not the ones you wanted. And they're too small. And they're too big. And they're too heavy. And the Lord's like, I'm up here, man. Look up here. Romans 121 describes the lost man, which says, neither were they thankful. Psalm 100 verse 4 describes the blessed man who is thankful unto him and blessing his name. Luke 17, 16 describes a healed man, one who is ready to fall down on his face and give the Lord thanks. And Ephesians 5.20 describes the spirit-filled man as one who is giving thanks always for all things. As we stop this morning and consider what's before us, and as Ms. Curran comes to the organ this morning, I want to ask you this question. Where are your eyes this morning? Are they looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith? Are they looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Or maybe, perhaps, you're just looking for sticks. I want to open up the altar this morning. If you just need to come talk to the Lord and renew your fellowship with Him, would you come when she begins to play? Don't wait, just come.